Hello, dear listeners. My name is Ali, and I'm the host of a new investigative series, The Doe Files, a series out of respect for those who have managed to slip between the cracks. Those who have lived through so much pain, and yet there was little closure or justice for them or their families. They are given numbers, nicknames, mainly loosely based on John and Jane Doe. They have their own Wikipedia pages, and they have faces, But unfortunately, for whatever reason, we still don't know who they are. The Dofiles hopes to give these victims a voice and a chance for us to try and learn more about them and who they may be. The Dofiles is a production of Insight Podcast. First episode, we will learn more about Little Miss Lake Pensacoffee. Listen from March 2nd on iTunes or your favourite podcast app. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie and with me is Allie. How are you, Allie? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I am pretty excited about tonight's episode, probably more so than most episodes. One of the things I really liked about putting this one together was I got a break from some of the heavy topics that we usually research and talk about week after week. I mean, there's there are low points in this one, but Overall, it was kind of a break from the heavy stuff. And I think with the cases we have covered lately, we deserve this break. I agree. And I realized that as a listener of podcasts, I also sometimes need true crime breaks when I'm listening to a lot of heavy stuff. And so I just wanted to give two quick shout outs to two that I've been listening to lately when I need that break. And the first is the audio drama, The Breakers. It reminds me a bit of The Martian in that it's a person that, who's basically keeping an audio diary. It's set in a dystopian world after a virus has spread. It's really well written, and I think you guys would like it. I know it doesn't sound light because it's a dystopian world, but it's fiction, so it feels lighter. But if you want something that's lighter but nonfiction, I would recommend Varmints. Every week, Paul and Donna feature a different animal. I liked the Rhino episode, but you know, pick any of them. They're great. Also family friendly, so you don't have to run and grab your earbuds when you want to listen with kids around. So I definitely recommend those two if you need something lighter to listen to in the middle of all this true crime that we usually listen to. And tonight's episode, like I said, is one of the little bit lighter ones. It's more true crime adjacent than directly related to true crime. I had mentioned in a previous episode that I had considered early on doing an episode about the self-proclaimed psychic Sylvia Brown. She's commented on many charged topics, elections, climate change, and high-profile true crime cases. And after I mentioned that on the episode, we got a lot of feedback saying people would actually like to hear an episode about her. The group blew up. They were all very excited about the potential for this episode. Yeah, I had not done it because I didn't think it would really stick, but apparently it did. So we're going to talk about her. Many Americans will remember her from the 1990s, particularly into the early 2000s, from her appearances on the daytime talk show Montel, and also she'd be on Larry King's primetime show, Outside of the U.S., I don't think she was quite as big, but she is definitely part of American pop culture. 
being Australian, I hadn't heard of her, but you can find a lot of her interviews and appearances on YouTube. You can really get a feel for all that is Sylvia, and I do recommend people watch some of those just so you can really picture her. Just before we get started talking about Sylvia, we do want to mention that we are not talking about psychics, psychic abilities, psychic powers, our belief in them, our not belief in them, or giving any commentary on any other high-profile psychics. This episode is just about Sylvia Brown. Most of what we learned from her early life was from her memoir, which is called Psychic, My Life in Two Worlds. Sylvia was born Sylvia Celeste Shoemaker here in Kansas City, Missouri to Bill and Celeste Shoemaker on October 19, 1936. Her father was charming and outgoing. I kind of picture him being very much like Sylvia. Her mother, according to Sylvia, though, was severe and abusive, and the physical abuse was largely hidden from her father. So Sylvia grew up knowing she was safer when her father was home, but he worked full time. At some point in her childhood, around the age 7 to 10, she disclosed the ongoing abuse to her father, and he threatened Celeste that if she ever hit Sylvia again, he would, quote, tear her apart. So Celeste stopped with the physical abuse, but the emotional and verbal abuse continued. Sylvia wrote of times where Celeste would tell her that she stayed up all night thinking of ways to kill Sylvia without getting caught. She would tell Sylvia that her sister Sharon was the pretty one. She was hypercritical. She seemed to resent Sylvia's relationship with her father, Bill. And later on as an adult, Sylvia would learn her mother had developed an addiction to prescription drugs when Sylvia was a child. And the Shoemaker marriage was not a good one. Bill did dote on and focus a lot of attention on his older daughter. They took ballroom dance classes together versus him taking them with his wife. And he also had a series of affairs until the marriage came to the verge of divorce when Sylvia was 16. Fearing that a divorce would mean Bill moving out and her being stuck in the home with her abusive mother full-time, Sylvia saw only one way out. She was seeing two different boys, neither serious, so she approached the one she liked the most and asked him if he wanted to get married. Sylvia reasoned the only way to get out of her mother's home was to be a married woman, so she took her birth certificate, carefully changed the birth year to indicate she was 18, and she went across the river to Kansas City, Kansas, with her boyfriend to get married. They had no plans on what to do next, though, so they both returned to their homes. Celeste found the marriage license that night, and the marriage was quickly annulled, and the couple were forbidden by their parents from seeing each other anymore. So Sylvia's first marriage lasted approximately two hours. Sylvia often repeated the same story that she came from a familiar line of psychics reaching back 300 years that she inherited it from her grandmother, Ada, who was Celeste's mother. At three years old, she told her family she would have a sister when she was six, and a month before her sixth birthday, her only sibling was born. She also told her family that her grandfather had died before they knew it. She also reports predicting the deaths of her great-grandmothers and seeing the spirit in her bedroom that night. Her grandmother Ada, being a psychic herself, was able to give Sylvia the tools for dealing with all this. 
She also developed the ability to sense illness and sickness, which made it difficult for her to be in large groups until she learnt how to filter these feelings so she didn't feel them all the time. Now, of course, this is all self-reported by Sylvia. The benefit or the drawback, depending on your view, of writing her memoir when she was 74 is that the majority of the people who could confirm or deny that these happenings, they have died. Her sister is still alive but is on her staff, so she's not necessarily an impartial witness in all this. There is one woman, though, a childhood friend named Mary Margaret. Sylvia refers to her in the book, and they kept in touch. Mary Margaret gave an interview to the Kansas City Star newspaper around the time of Sylvia's death. She told them that they met at St. Jade's Grade School, which is a private Catholic school in Kansas City. The stories told are a little inconsistent, but they could be more accounted for by time. 70 years is a long time to remember every detail. I have problems remembering what happened a week ago, let alone 70 years ago. Sylvia says she predicted Mary Margaret's mother would break her arm, and she did, though Mary Margaret remembers this being a classmate who broke her arm. She said that Sylvia would know things, though, that she had no way of knowing, and she does fully back up Sylvia's claims of having psychic abilities when she was a child. One aspect that comes up frequently in Sylvia's work as a psychic is the idea of spirit guides. She claimed she was guided by the spirit of an Aztec Incan woman who died protecting her child from an attack from a Spanish conquistador. And her name was Elena, but for some reason, Sylvia opted to call her Francine. And she said her spirit guide, which we all have one, by the way, didn't really care what she was called. She only saw her once, though, in a moment during Sylvia's early adulthood after her psychic grandmother had died. She started doubting her abilities and started believing that perhaps she was actually mentally ill. So she started seeing a therapist. Francine materialized in front of Sylvia, her sister, and their parents in order to prove that she was in fact real and not just a voice in Sylvia's head. And Sylvia would talk to Francine regularly as things happened in her life, but Francine would often just remind her that things happened for a reason. Sylvia attended college in Kansas City and became a teacher at a small Catholic school, one of the only teachers there who wasn't also a nun. She later claimed to have a graduate degree, but... Her college transcripts that she once sent to a critic who was trying to prove some claims about her education, and she was trying to refute them, it actually showed that she may not have finished her undergraduate degree, or she at least didn't finish it at that college. Regardless, shortly after college, she met her husband, that friend, Mary Margaret, that we were talking about. She was dating a policeman who set Sylvia up with a fellow officer named Gary Dufresne. In October 1958, they had their first date, and six months later, they were married. Sylvia expressed doubts about the marriage before she went through with it. Mary Margaret told her she could back out. It wasn't too late, but Sylvia went through with it anyway. Her parents loved Gary. He seemed like a good man. He had a stable job. He was basically the type of man she should want to marry. According to Sylvia, it only took a month before Gary hit her for the first time. He controlled all of their finances, including her income from her teaching job. He expected her to be the perfect housewife while also having her continue to work full time. 
The first time he hit her, it was in response to her forgetting to get something at the store that she was supposed to get. Other times would be because his laundry wasn't done properly or she wasn't dressed the way he wanted her to dress. She kept up this front that everything was okay at home, and her family continued to think Gary was just a great guy. Even after Sylvia's femur was broken, which caused a lifelong limp, she kept covering for him. In 1960, their first son was born, a boy named Paul. They bought a house in Kansas City to settle into, but there was a series of unfortunate events after moving into the house. Sylvia contracted hepatitis and needed emergency surgery. Gary lost his job, a tornado hit the house, and when the repairs from the tornado were barely complete, they had a house fire that damaged the house more than the tornado had. In the middle of these events, Sylvia said she asked her spirit guide, Francine, why these things were happening, and she was told it was because the house had been built at a Native American burial site. Sylvia wanted to move, but Gary was resistant to the idea. But between losing his job and the house fire, he conceded. He talked to a friend in Sunnyvale, California. He told Sylvia that the friend could get him a job at the police force there. So less than two months later, the family headed out to California. Sylvia found work right away, but there was no job for Gary. When Sylvia was pregnant with her second son, who would be born in February 1966, a neighbour showed up at her door. It was a woman who had a serious problem of alcohol, and she also had a four-year-old daughter named Mary. Sylvia, perhaps seeing a little of her own childhood in that situation, she'd go out of her way to compliment the little girl and just fuss over her in general to let her know that someone saw her and cared about her. The woman was at Sylvia's door with the little girl and told Sylvia that she was having trouble caring for little Mary. Mary also had a brother who was a little bit older than her and he had an unspecified disability. Mary's mother wondered if Sylvia, who she noticed had taken a liking to Mary, she wondered if Sylvia would take Mary in until she and her husband could get back on their feet. Of course Sylvia said yes. She took Mary in immediately She had herself appointed as Mary's legal guardian, and she raised Mary alongside her boys. Mary's parents never took the custody back. When Paul, the oldest son, was around 10 or 11, Gary did something he hadn't done before. According to Sylvia, he raised his hand against Paul. She got in between them, taking the strike herself, and told Gary she would kill him if he ever touched one of the children again. But she didn't stay to find out if he would take this threat seriously. He stormed off to another room. She gathered the three children and walked right out the door and immediately moved in with her sister, who had also relocated to California. According to her website, Sylvia began her professional career as a psychic in 1973 with small meetings in her home After she was divorced from Gary, Gary, though, characterizes this a little differently. He said she actually started her career as more of a party trick than anything else. The couple was hosting a party, and she offered to give tarot card readings to the guests. It was intended to just be fun, but Sylvia presented it to the partygoers as a real psychic experience. He claims he confronted her later, asking how she could pull that over on their friends. 
And again, according to Gary, she said she didn't care that if people fell for it, then they deserved to be taken in. In 1972, so right after her divorce, Sylvia married Dale Brown, making her Sylvia Brown, and that's the name that she'd been known for for the rest of her life. She had previously done a reading for him in which she predicted he would divorce his wife and marry a tall redhead. Years later, he called her and asked her out on a date, having put it together that she must have been the tall redhead. She does appear to me to be small on TV, but in real life, she's actually five foot eight. While she's more known for her blonde hair, that's all a dye job. Her natural colour is a reddish brown colour. It was while married to Dale that Sylvia started her psychic career for real. She quit teaching, she started doing more readings, began lecturing on the paranormal, and she became a certified hypnotist. She does hypnotism for people to lose weight or quit smoking to pay the bills for her business. In 1974, she opened the Nirvana Foundation for Psychic Research and registered it as a non-profit. In the mid-80s, she would form a church named Nova Spiritus. She makes a defence for charging for sharing her psychic gifts. She said something that she was doing it for years for free for anyone who asked. She wrote that most jobs are people putting their talents to work for them, and as long as she worked for, quote-unquote, God's greatest good, then she had nothing to feel sorry for. In addition to hypnosis, she taught classes on extrasensory perception and dream interpretation. During some of her psychic readings, she would channel Francine, meaning she let her spirit guide take over and use her body to communicate. She also started appearing on local television. One of Sylvia's goals with the Nirvana Foundation was to verify her visions independently. If someone told her of their past life during a session or they gave her information, she says she sent it off to be verified by experts, often at major universities. All of her readings, seances and hypnosis sessions were recorded for this purpose. One thing Sylvia doesn't do in her books terribly often is give names. She doesn't always say who verified this information, just that someone at, say, Stanford verified it. It could be argued she did this to protect the academics from being caught up in the controversy of the psychic world, but it also makes it hard for anyone to say something didn't happen when she doesn't give enough information to be followed up on or fact-checked. We're going to get into Sylvia's career in the limelight and some of her more famous true crime case ratings, which I know is what you're all here for, after a quick break for a word from this week's sponsor. These days, you can get practically anything you want on demand. Like this podcast, you listen when you want, when it's convenient for you. You can even get postage on demand. With Stamps.com, you can access all the services of the post office right from your desk. Today, I printed 11 customs forms and postage. Shoutouts to Norway, Sweden, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. Your packages are on the way. You can buy and print real U.S. postage for any letter or any package. It's all available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Because the day I did all this, it's a Sunday. On a Sunday, in my pajamas, at my desk, I was able to take care of a month's worth of packaging needs. You just click print and mail, and you're done. 
Stamps.com will even send you a digital scale. So you're weighing your letters and your packages so that you can print the exact amount of postage every time rather than slapping on a random amount of stamps. Not that I would have done anything so haphazard as that myself. Right now, use Insight for this special offer. You can get a four-week trial, includes postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in I-N-S-I-G-H-T. That's stamps.com. Enter Insight. Sylvia laid claim to a number of psychic gifts. She could channel spirits. Both Francine and another spirit named Rahim, through her, Rahim could heal people. She could see into the future, use extrasensory perception, and she could also communicate with ghosts to the level that she could help them make the transition from this world to the next. She also used astral projection, which is to say she was able to separate her spirit from her body and move around the earth freely. She could also sense people's medical problems. Another service she provided through her foundation was deghosting houses and businesses. It wasn't exorcisms because she said she didn't believe in those. Through a process that involved both seeing visions but also actually talking to the ghosts like you and I are talking to each other right now, she was able to convince them to go on to heaven. In Sylvia's terminology, a ghost is a spirit that hasn't crossed over to heaven and is stuck here on earth, generally because they don't know they're dead. A spirit is someone who has crossed over. So if Sylvia said she talked to a spirit, that means it's someone from the other side. But if she said she talked to a ghost, it means there's someone stuck on earth or this dimension or plane or whatever. This service, the deghosting, is what got her more and more television time. And this is what leads to us knowing who Sylvia Brown was. She channeled Francine while on a visit to Alcatraz with news crews in tow to try to convince the ghost of monster A.B. the Butcher Maldowitz to cross over. He would not, and as of 2010, Sylvia said he was still there and still haunting the old prison. She visited the Winchester Mystery House, which is honestly one of my favorite mystery things in this world. It was built by Sarah Winchester, who supposedly believed there was this curse that she was being pursued by the spirits of those killed by Winchester guns. She could either appease or escape the spirits by continually building on her house. When I guest hosted on Insight Junior in December, I talked about this house. It's said she confirmed that the curse was real, but in her memoir, she said that the only power the curse had was that Sarah believed in it and and let it direct her life. So she's a little inconsistent on that. She also visited a haunted Toys R Us store with a TV show called That's Incredible. And one of her most well-known TV appearances in those early days was on Leonard Nimoy's In Search Of. And I'll put the video of that in our Facebook group because YouTube's amazing. The 1990s was the time period that Sylvia reports the bulk of her successes. 
On season five of Unsolved Mysteries, Sylvia appeared in an episode on the Moss Beach Distillery, which is a restaurant reportedly haunted by a woman in blue. In her book, she characterises it as she investigated four unsolved mysteries. Sylvia met the woman in blue and learnt that her name was Mary Ellen Morley, who was in a car accident and died. She says that their cameras followed the employees of the distillery to the library where they found the information that confirmed what she said was true, right down to the name and the car accident. Now, you can look up this episode on Amazon Prime and watch it for yourself. Unsolved Mysteries didn't call her in. The restaurant had done so before the Unsolved Mysteries taping. Sylvia never said car accident. She said injuries to the head and chest, though in fairness that can be attributed to a car accident. Everything in the Unsolved Mysteries clip, including the trip to the library to check the vital statistics records, it was all recreation. Unsolved Mysteries didn't follow anyone, not Sylvia and not the employees. And one of the people verifying this all they happened to be identified on Unsolved Mysteries as a director of marketing for the restaurant. Everyone does seem sincere in their interviews with Unsolved Mysteries, but I think the source of the information is significant. Both Sylvia and the restaurant would fare well from some national publicity like that. Another success reported comes with an endorsement from a University of Santa Clara psychology professor named Dr. William Yabroff. There are two stories linked to him. One is that he brought students to Sylvia for Francine to identify the method of death in 10 suicides. And through Sylvia, Francine was correct in all of them. The second story is that the test he set up for her was that Dr. Yabroff, who was a psychologist, pulled 20 files of previous counseling patients of his. They had all died of various causes, and he brought the names to Sylvia for Francine to identify the cause of death. He didn't review them himself before this because he wanted to eliminate the possibility that she was actually reading his mind versus discussing this with the other side. Francine would have to make contact with the other side in order to know this information. And she was right 19 of the 20 times right off the bat. The one she got wrong was that she said the person died of a drug overdose involving three different drugs, but only two drugs were detected on the autopsy. Dr. Yabroff followed up with the family afterwards, and they confirmed that a second toxicology report was issued, and it actually was three drugs. Dr. Yabroff never wrote a paper on this test or on any of his findings, though Sylvia said he used the story in his lectures. He did write her a letter of endorsement on university letterhead, calling her an authentic psychic. The letter is photocopied, and in her book called Oddly Enough Insight, Case Files from the Psychic World, so you can actually see the letter. She's not just saying this letter was written. It's not dated, and she doesn't give a date except to say it was many years ago. So I looked up Dr. Yabroff, hoping to get in touch with him, just quick email or something, to ask him about this, but he passed away in 2011. Sylvia wrote about this incident in a number of her books, some that were published before his death, 
And I can't find anywhere saying that he was disputing what she said. So we would need a psychic to contact Dr. Yabrov. Another thing that's interesting about Sylvia, she wrote like two dozen books or something, but she recycles a lot of the same information, often verbatim between her books. So she doesn't actually have like 24 books full of unique experiences. If you read three of her books, you've pretty much gotten the bulk of it. Regardless of Sylvia's psychic successes, she had her largest personal failure in the early 1990s when she was charged with securities fraud. Now, according to Sylvia's accounting of what happened, she and her husband Dale were living together still, but the marriage was falling apart. She was working long hours at the foundation and he seemed to be doing nothing. But he told her about this investment opportunity with a gold mine and she told him to go forward with it, but only with their personal investment finances. He had to keep the Church of Nova Spiritus out of it. After they legally separated, she found out that he was arrested on fraud charges. He had sold shares in the gold mine without the paperwork required and then abandoned the project. Her name was on everything and she was arrested as well. Dal had also failed to pay taxes on it. She had to clean up the mess. She sold the expensive and abandoned equipment at the mine. She paid back the investors. She made monthly payments to the IRS for the back taxes. In the end, she pleaded no contest to sale of security without permit, and she was sentenced to one year probation and 200 hours of community service. Her ex-husband was given four months in jail and one year probation. She then declared bankruptcy. She closed the Nirvana Foundation and reorganised under a corporation bearing her name. Basically, she claimed she was blind to her own finances and her ex-husband dragged her into this illegal operation that she made restitution even though it wasn't her fault. For the obvious, how did she not see this coming psychic joke? Sylvia maintains that psychics cannot be psychic about themselves. Her belief was that we all have this preordained path through this life and we, for whatever reason, also choose these challenges. That she isn't allowed to know when they'll come. Except it was reported at the time that she claimed to have this psychic feeling that the gold mine would be a success. It was also in the criminal complaint that she and her ex-husband talked another couple into investing $20,000 for operational costs, and that money was deposited into the Nirvana Foundation account, and then closed the gold mine business a month later. After Sylvia's death, the skeptical inquirer requested her FBI files. Sylvia claimed at various times to have aided the FBI in cases and having given them testimony. None of this appears in the documents relating to Sylvia Brown that were provided from the FBI through this Freedom of Information Act request. The documents that did come stated that Sylvia and someone whose name was redacted in the files were being investigated for fraud from the mid-80s due to a number of loans they took out involving the Nirvana Foundation, and then defaulted on prior to declaring bankruptcy. So it wasn't just the securities fraud with the gold mine going on. There was an investigation into possible fraudulent business practices even before that. 
the investigation into Sylvia for bank fraud and embezzlement was dropped when it was determined there wasn't enough evidence of criminal intent. They simply couldn't prove that she was doing this financial wiggling to circumvent the system rather than that she was just really bad at business. Since it does appear she wasn't the one managing her own finances for most of her adult life, it is possible that she was just signing on the dotted line, trusting the people she did give financial control to. When Sylvia divorced Dale Brown, she kept the last name but added an E to the end of it. This is also when she skyrocketed from a somewhat known psychic to America's best known psychic. And we can all thank the Montel Williams daytime talk show for this. Sylvia said the first time she met Montel was while filming a haunting, that Montel was unconvinced, but, but Sylvia saw a ghost. She pulled Montel over to it, allowing him to pass through where the ghost was, and he was able to experience the coldness that you feel when you pass through a ghost, according to Sylvia. Sylvia was a major fixture on his show, even making weekly appearances. She would do readings for the audience. Now, there is a lot of debate out there how much Montel believed this. Some people think he did believe her powers, and others think he brought her on the show because she was a TV rating star. People loved watching her, which meant advertisers would love buying ad spots during her episodes. She did some of the most high-profile readings right there on Montel's set and was epically wrong on so many of them. Like I said at the top of the episode, this is more true crime adjacent, and this is where the true crime comes in. Sylvia made non-crime predictions all the time about politics and technology, and we could walk through those and pick them apart. But we're going to focus up a bit now and just talk about the missing and murdered cases that Sylvia did readings on. The Skeptical Inquirer looked at a large number of Sylvia's predictions on criminal cases and evaluated them for any signs of being right. Sylvia herself claimed an 85% minimum accuracy rate. Now, this study is a little older. They could probably redo it because there's been some more resolution in some cases. But this study looked at 25 cases that had a resolution and determined that Sylvia wasn't even nearly right in any of them. A lot of cases remain unsolved still. I mean, I guess it's possible that she got them right, but (laughs) figuring the ones she did get wrong, she got really wrong. I'm going to go with no on that. We'll obviously link this article with most of our other sources, so you'll be able to go read them in their entirety. But we picked a few out, researched the cases to get a little bit more information than was in that article so that we can kind of show you what they mean when they say she was not even a little bit right. In March of 1999, six-year-old Opal Joe Jennings was playing outside with a two-year-old cousin and four-year-old friend in a lot next to her grandmother's house. While the kids were playing, a man pulled up in his car, said hello grabbed Opal, hitting her in the chest, and threw her in his car before taking off. The four-year-old gave a description of the car and the men. That information would bring in a tip that led to the arrest of Richard Lee Franks, who was later convicted of kidnapping. 
In 2003, horseback riders would find little Opal's remains and it was determined that she was killed shortly after she went missing. Except after Opal went missing and before the arrest of Franks, her grandmother went on the Montel Williams show to ask Sylvia. Sylvia told her grandmother that Opal was still alive, that she had been kidnapped but sold into slavery in Japan and was put in a place either called Takaro or Takara. In 1999, nine-year-old Erica Baker disappeared while she was out walking her dog, and Sylvia told her family that she was alive, and similar to Opal, she was also sold. This time, she was still in her home state of Michigan, but had been sold for drugs, and a black woman was involved. Then in 2005, Christian Gabriel confessed to having been drunk driving when he hit Erica, He had put her in the back of his van and left her body at a park. She has not been found. We covered the murder of Chandra Levy in a previous episode, so we won't go back over all the details. But Sylvia Brown was not the only psychic to make a prediction here, and a large number of them said that she'd be found in a wooded area. It was public knowledge that her last internet search was for trails in a wooded park, so this wasn't exactly a stretch. If you remember that episode, police started searching that park and came very close to where her remains had been left, but missed finding them as a result of poor communication between organisers of the search and the searchers. Now, Sylvia claims this prediction a success. For the record, she said that Chandra would be found in the woods down in a marshy area. Chandra was in the woods, but it wasn't marshy. In fact, she was found on a steep incline, which is one place a marsh is an impossibility. So while she claims it's a success, she only got the woods right, which is pretty much what the police already believed and where they were actively searching. In 2006, there was a major explosion at a coal mine in West Virginia. The news originally reported that 13 of the trapped miners survived based on some noises that were coming from the mine. Sylvia Brown was on a live radio show at the time, and this news came in, and she said she predicted that they were all alive. When she was informed later in the broadcast that the news reports were incorrect, that actually 12 of the 13 were found dead, she said, and I'm going to quote it here, I don't think there's anybody alive, maybe one. How crazy for them to report that they were alive when they weren't. I just don't think they are alive. Well, then they pause to go to a commercial break. When they come back from the commercial, she said she didn't think they were alive after all. Basically, her psychic visions and news reports seem to be lining up here. So let's talk about two cases from Montel that Sylvia publicizes as having been correct, and she points them out in her book. This first one goes probably more in the unresolved category, but I mean, it does illustrate some of the risk of the reading she was doing. In 1997, Erica Frazier was 17 years old. One October night, she was out driving and she seemingly vanished off the face of the earth. Her car was found parked between two hay bales in the middle of a field. It was unlocked and her purse and All of the contents were inside, but her car keys were gone, and so was she. Her mother went on Montel less than a year later for a reading from Sylvia, and Sylvia told her mother that Erica was dead. 
that she was murdered by someone who, at the time of the reading, was in jail, and that they could find her in the water. She was asked if there was anyone who had information about this murder who could tell them more. Sylvia said someone named Chris could. Now, the Montel show silenced the name, so you don't hear her say Chris, but they kept the camera on Sylvia, and you can essentially read her lips that she was saying Chris. And now Erica did know someone named Chris. It was her ex-boyfriend. The very next day after the episode aired, he killed his girlfriend and himself in a murder-suicide. Chris's mother sued Montel and the production company and Sylvia for damages. The case was dismissed for a number of reasons. And I mean, part of it is that there was no direct link. Nobody knows that Chris watched it. He didn't say anything about it. But that's a pretty big coincidence that it's the very next day. Erica has never been found, and Chris was never a person of interest in the case. He had an alibi. It's unlikely he had any particular knowledge of what happened. There's only one person of interest ever named, and that was the last person known to see Erica that night. But this was a small town, and he was just named on TV as someone with information. I mean, there can be some real-world consequences to throwing out a random name accusing someone of knowing something about a murder. A few months after this incident, Montel told audiences that Sylvia named Chris as the murderer and that he then killed his girlfriend and himself. Now, Sylvia repeats this in her memoir. She changes the names of those involved, but it's pretty obvious because of the suicide who she was talking about, and she spins it as proof she was right. But the court documents and the police statements, they don't back her up. They don't back Montel up on this assertion. According to the court documents, Sylvia said the murderer was in prison and that someone named Chris knew something about it, not that he killed her. Investigators have reiterated that Chris's alibi checks out and that the death and the murder of his girlfriend, that was a domestic incident not linked to Erica and that Erica's case remains open and unsolved. Sylvia, by the way, says she was heartbroken for Chris's family and that they never showed her giving a name on the Montel show again. They would pan the camera away from her whenever she would say a name. But she does conveniently leave out the part where she was sued because of this, which I'm going to guess is the biggest factor in this decision. The other story Sylvia points to as success in her memoir was that of Michelle O'Keefe, she was tragically murdered in a mall parking lot at the age of 18. Now, Sylvia said a man wearing a uniform like a security guard was responsible. Some reports online say she gave his name as Lee. She says in her book that she told them the security guard who had found Michelle should be looked at more closely. Police had suspected that security guard Raymond Lee Jennings because they felt his story didn't add up. He was later convicted of the murder. It's unknown how much of Sylvia's psychic vision steered the investigation, though since the police were already looking at him, it's not hard to imagine in the back of some minds it was confirmation that they were on the right track. What Sylvia would not live to see was the exoneration of Raymond Lee Jennings. In 2016, prosecutors said that new evidence made them unsure of his guilt and supported his release. And in 2017, a judge struck the conviction from his record. At that point, he'd served 11 years in prison. 
Now, we have done our share of looking at wrongful conviction cases and very, very rarely does the prosecution support the release of the convicted. And to get a true exoneration, that's even rarer. Sylvia's most famous misses were to the parents of missing children. On January 12th, 2007, police were serving a warrant on Michael Devlin in Kirkwood, Missouri. They noticed that his pickup truck, it was parked in front of the apartment complex. It matched the description of a truck that was reported in the abduction of 13-year-old Ben Ownby just four days before. On entering the apartment, they found not only Ben, but they also found Sean Hornbeck, who was 11 years old when he had been kidnapped four years previously. When Sean was missing only a few months, his parents asked Sylvia on Montel about his kidnapping, and she said he was taken by a Hispanic man with long dreadlocks and that he was dead. She said his body would be found between two boulders in a wooded area 20 miles from their home. Search efforts followed this information. Tips were coming in from people who heard what she said, and they knew an area that matched that description where there'd be two boulders in a wooded area in the vicinity. They allocated search efforts based on what Sylvia said. Now, Michael Devlin was a white man with short hair, so that was a major fail on the identity of the kidnapper. And she got the arguably most important detail wrong. She sat on stage while Sean's family stood in the audience and she told them that he was dead. His mother's head dropped as she cried. And in spite of her repeated claims that she never charged law enforcement or the families of missing or murdered loved ones for her assistance, Sean's parents reported to Anderson Cooper that they were only allowed to speak to Sylvia in their designated spot on the show, and if they wanted additional assistance from her, they could pay it her going rate, which was $700 for 20 to 30 minutes. Sylvia denies this. She said she never told them that they had to pay for more help. She also issued an apology, sort of. It was an I'm sorry, but. To the New York Daily News, she said, I'm terribly sorry that this happened, but I think my body of work stands by itself. I've broken case after case. And then she said, I think it's cruel to jump on this one case in which I was wrong. I've said a thousand times, I'm not God. To John Ronson in an interview in The Guardian, she said she had her wires crossed. There were other missing kids in the area and she had picked up one of them. She gave no name. She gave no date. She gave nothing of substance. And as the article points out, this was vague enough that it's impossible to fact check. That's very convenient. She could say that in any case that she got her wires crossed and she was thinking of someone else. She picked up someone else. In a very similar setup, the mother of Amanda Berry went on Montel to ask about her daughter. And for those who don't know, in 2003, on the day before her 17th birthday, Amanda Berry went missing. She was held captive with two other women until she was able to escape in May of 2013, saving herself, the two women, and her daughter, who was born while she was being held in Ariel Castro's home. And for those who are more interested in hearing more about that case, Once Upon a Crime did a fabulous job covering Amanda Berry's case. 
In 2004, when Amanda was missing just a year, her mother, Luana Miller, went on the Montel show where Sylvia told her that Amanda was dead and said Amanda's last words were, goodbye, mum, I love you. In 2006, Luana would die of heart failure, believing her daughter was dead. Now, Sylvia's statement after Amanda was found was, For more than 50 years as a spiritual psychic and guide, when called upon to either help authorities with missing persons cases or to help families with questions about their loved ones, I've been more right than wrong. If ever there was a time to be grateful and relieved for being mistaken, this is that time. Only God is right all the time. My heart goes out to Amanda Berry, her family, the other victims and their families. I wish you a peaceful recovery. Now, that's not exactly an apology, as you'll notice. It's not even a I'm sorry, but like with Sean Hornbeck. But it's less defensive and it is kinder. When Amanda Berry later said that she saw that segment while in captivity, Montel did issue an apology on social media. It said in part, I'm so sorry that anything said on my show caused her pain and I'm so grateful it turned out to be incorrect. Amanda Berry is a clearly one very strong young woman whose courage should inspire us all. I think we've given a pretty good overview of the big cases. I have a list of other predictions, like I said, world events, election outcomes and all that. But we'd be here all day and veer too far from true crime. But you do have to indulge me on one more true crime case because this one really left me shaking my head. Linda McClelland disappeared while visiting her daughter's house in July of 2000. And her two daughters and her son-in-law, David Rapaski, appeared on Montel two years later. Sylvia said Linda was alive and in a nursing home in Florida. She had been taken by a man named MJ. And this was some comfort to the family because there was suspicion that Linda's boyfriend, who was reportedly not a very nice guy, had been responsible for her disappearance. But they checked into any number of nursing homes in Florida and nothing came back. They never found her. In 2003, a man confessed to police that he helped David Rapaski, Linda's son-in-law, bury her body, that she was choked and stomped on by David. This information bore out when the man led investigators to her body and the autopsy confirmed the cause of death, and David is now in prison for this murder. So we've seen cases where Sylvia said someone was dead when they were alive, and we've seen plenty of the reverse. She said someone was alive and they were later found deceased. But I have to say this is the only case I found where she was wrong about it while she was looking and talking to the actual killer. As Montel was Sylvia's most vocal champion, James Randi was her most vocal critic. James Randi is well known himself in the paranormal world, but not as a psychic. He's possibly America's most famous skeptic. In 1996, James founded the James Randi Educational Foundation to educate people, including the media, about the dangers of just accepting paranormal claims without requiring proof. Because Sylvia recorded readings for her clients, James was able to get people who were dissatisfied with their experience to send them through to him. So he had this backlog of everyday people saying Sylvia was wrong in her visions. 
everyday people who spent hundreds of dollars, as you said, Charlie, $700 for 20 or 30 minutes, they spent all this money for that information that turned out not to be true. So he was very vocal about his criticisms of her and felt that he had the data to back this up. James Randi developed a challenge in 1964 where he publicly criticised the paranormal and he was told to put his money where his mouth is. So he did. He offered a $1,000 prize to anyone who could prove psychic abilities in a controlled environment. And this amount would grow to $10,000 and later to a $1,000,000. In 2015, the contest was discontinued to free up that money that could be used to test people for other things. A few thousand reportedly took the challenge, but none succeeded. He publicly challenged Sylvia Brown to take his challenge in March of 2001 on an episode of Larry King Live. And Larry King's show was another place Sylvia was a somewhat frequent guest. While she was given a lot of time for call-in readings, she was occasionally challenged unlike on Montel, and this was one of those episodes. Putting Sylvia head-to-head with a sceptic was something that never happened on Montel. In March and again in October of 2001, Sylvia said that she would take the challenge. But she would first claim that she didn't know how to get in touch with them. Then she didn't believe he had the money, so then he had to give proof the money existed. She eventually said that James Randi wasn't a godly man, so she wasn't going to do it. Sylvia frequently did this. She described people who criticised her doubts, her abilities as ungodly or as or dark entities. They were people who turned so far from God and they only spread negativity. She said her mother was one of those people. Her first husband, well, her second husband, if you count that brief teenage marriage, He was also ungodly. James Randi was one in her view, and so was John Ronson. I have a little bias here, and Allie knows what I'm going to say. John Ronson is one of my favorite people on this planet. Getting to meet him was 90% of why I went to CrimeCon last year. I'll be going again this year. Use Insight for 10% off your ticket. John Ronson is the author of The Psychopath Test, Men Who Start Goats, and So You've Been Publicly Shamed. He also hosts the podcast, The Butterfly Effect. Towards the end of Sylvia's life, she had all but stopped doing interviews. As the internet grew, so did everyone's ability to fact-check her. Her high-profile failed reading in the case of Sean Hornbeck certainly didn't help. A lot of people wanted to interview her after Sean was found alive, and she turned them down. But she was still working and doing lectures and public readings in addition to her $700 phone readings. John Ronson wanted to interview her but didn't have a way in. He noticed she was doing a lecture tour on a cruise ship, so he booked a ticket because that's the kind of stuff he does, which is why his articles and his books are so interesting. But back to the point. He went on this cruise and he managed to get an interview with Sylvia, The entire article is interesting, and I think I've said a million times, we'll link it in our show notes, and we'll post it. It's the Guardian article that I had referred to earlier in the episode. After his interview, in which Sylvia reveals very little, he left the cruise ship, and she proceeded to tell those at her lecture that John Ronson was a dark entity. She likely assumed he was going to print what was not going to be a positive piece, and she was preemptively attacking him. By putting the person down, 
the person giving this information, it gives us a reason to just not believe them without requiring further proof. So why should you believe John Ronson or James Randi or any of her other skeptics? They're dark entities. Being a dark entity means they're on the surface untrustworthy. So don't even bother trying to prove them wrong. This is a tactic she would use to be able to defend herself without actually providing proof of her abilities. Sylvia would go on to marry two more times. After her divorce from Dale, she had this longtime business associate, Larry Beck, who would help her write her finances and get her out of the hole she was in and back to success. And she had known him since the early 1970s, though it wasn't until after she divorced Dale that they became romantically involved. The marriage ended after seven years when Larry told her he wanted a divorce. Sylvia later found out he had been having an affair. And Sylvia married for the last time in 2009 when she married Michael Ullery. In 2011, she had a heart attack and her health spiralled downward from there, though she still continued to work. But she died in 2013 at the age of 77. Her son Christopher now runs a Sylvia Brown business. He gives readings himself, as he and Sylvia both say they inherited the family's psychic gift. In researching this case, I found several points where Sylvia contradicted herself. She claimed in her book that people only need readings every five years, and any psychic who told them differently was scamming them. Yet many report having multiple sessions with her within a few months or years. She said she didn't charge police or missing persons' families money, but she did. There's documentation that a police department paid her a consulting fee. Sean Hornbeck's parents said that they were told they could talk to her more after the Montel show for her usual fee. She denied it, but what do they have to gain by lying about it? And even in death, she contradicted herself. You might wonder how she could get her own life so wrong. She had a husband who abused her, a husband who dragged her unknowingly, according to her, into illegal business dealings and a husband who cheated on her. Surely she should have seen through any of these things, if not all of them. But she says you cannot be psychic for yourself. Even though she can see the past of other people, she is not allowed to see her own and she has to live the life the way the rest of us do, blind to the future. But then on an episode of Larry King Live, she said she knew she'd die at the age of 88. Based on her own beliefs of her limitations of her psychic power, she couldn't have known this, and she didn't, because she died at age 77. The biggest contradiction of all, I think, is her own feelings as a parent with how she treated the parents of missing children. There's absolutely no doubt that Sylvia Brown loved her children and her grandchildren. She adored them. Honestly, in her book, she gets really braggy in that way, obnoxious parents who think their children and grandchildren are the greatest, the way they get. So basically, like my Facebook page, if I'm honest about it. But, you know, she's doing this and she's not acting. You can tell it's genuine. I mean, for heaven's sake, she took in a child who wasn't biologically hers just because the little girl needed a home. But somehow or for some reason, she couldn't or she wouldn't take that and realize that Sean Hornbeck's mother loves him just as much. Amanda Berry's mother loved her just as much. 
Sylvia said in an interview that it hurt her to tell parents these terrible things. But she did tell them these things, and she was wrong. She inflicted this pain on them, and I don't believe she believed her own hype. I don't think she actually thought she saw Sean Hornbeck on the other side. I think she knew she was making it up. Especially when you look at if she's aware that her lines can get crossed, she can mistaken one child for another child, then why say something that you don't believe that you are correct in? You're taking the risk of hurting someone. You are going to hurt someone. She would have known that. I also think she knew she had to make these big, wide predictions to keep getting back on the Montel show, to keep selling books, to keep her career going. It's frustrating, though, because at what price does that come at? It's upsetting people. It's breaking people's hearts. It's giving them wrong information. It's getting them to lose hope when there is still hope. We were discussing this a bit in our group just about Sylvie in general and Caitlin, who is the host of White Wine True Crime Podcast. She mentioned she doesn't think Sylvia would have survived social media. Part of why she got away with what she did was we couldn't both fact check her and widely distribute her failings. If she tried this today, she wouldn't have gotten away with it for long. I think that Sylvia Brown, if she had any psychic abilities at all, she oversold them. But I think what she really had was that one skill that comes from being raised in an abusive home and being in an abusive marriage, and that's the ability to read people. She could read the moods and the sudden shifts in moods. These are the things that children look for to avoid an abusive parent's wrath. This is what she's using when she does these cold readings. She notices when she said the wrong thing and put the person off. She knows when she said the right thing and she pleased them. I think what she did was she used her ability to read people, to make some predictions, and then fame and maybe money took over from there. And she was able to turn off the part of her that gave sympathy and empathy. If you watch her readings and telling these people that their children are dead, she doesn't seem genuinely empathetic or sympathetic. She seems cold. She seems like any sympathy she shows, she looks like she's faking it. 